Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. In August 2018, we produced an episode called Driving in the Future, looking in part at electric vehicles. Since that episode, the electric car industry has seen a considerable rise. And in this month's episode, we'll explore driving in the present. We'll consider some of the underlying technologies and the environmental impact, while we also consider the economic situation, which is making electric vehicles more viable every day. Seeing electric cars on the road is becoming more common, certainly here in the UK and around the world. In February of this year, there were 5.6 million electric cars on the road globally. In March, 58% of car sales in Norway were electric. It's normal to buy an electric car. But in June, Germany overtook Norway, becoming Europe's largest electric vehicle market. In the US, sales have risen to 2.5% of the total market. And in China, it's predicted to rise to 10% in 2020. This month, 7.5% of cars sold in Europe are electric. And that's double what it was this time last year. Interestingly, sales of plug-in hybrids, cars with a mix of petrol and batteries, but where you can plug in to charge the battery, have dipped with people choosing to go for fully electric cars. Indeed, if you ask a petrol driver if they'll go electric, they might tell you that they'll try hybrid first. Ask an electric car driver if they'll switch to hybrid, and you're highly unlikely to find many who would. Full disclosure, in researching this podcast, I became fully convinced, and I'm now one of those statistics. That's the sound of my car starting up and driving away. The sound you hear is added to stop it being too quiet. More on that later, and we'll hear about an innovative addressing system, which I didn't know I needed, but that's all to come. As you may know, I have another podcast called The Cosmic Shed. On it, we explore science and science fiction. And I should say, it was recently named as one of The Guardian's favourite podcasts. For one of the episodes, I spoke to Robert Llewellyn, who you might know as Crichton in Red Dwarf, or as the presenter on Scrap Heat Challenge. But these days, Robert is an electric car enthusiast and a science fiction author. He wrote a series of novels called The News From Trilogy, set in a near future where everything is powered by green technologies. As Robert and I discussed that for the Cosmic Shed podcast, the conversation drifted towards electric vehicles. Here's a snippet of our chat as we were considering the need for storing the power generated from renewable technologies. Now nobody's putting in a solar farm, for instance, around the world just on its own. They put it in with a huge battery bank as well because then they can supply non-intermittent power. Same with wind farms. So. Yeah, no, I've just done my first bit of solar stuff, which is just a 60-watt panel on, on an arbor seat, charging a battery, which is powering the pond filter. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> but what you're not using... I mean, you, 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 I always say this, you know, my house makes no difference. Uh, and your pond pump makes no difference individually. But if a million people had pond pumps like that, that uh, the aggregated total of that electricity is measurable by the national grid. That is many, many megawatts a year less that people aren't buying from the national grid. In my case, you know, my uh, electricity bills from uh, last year, from about mid-May till mid-September, were single figures a month. 
Really? Yeah. And, I'm, and I charge two electric cars. So my uh, annual consumption is way above the average of... of so what, as I have said in the past, sensible people who have solar panels and a diesel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've actually got three, but I'm, trying, I'm not sure what to do with one of them. Uh, we, I've got a Tesla Model S, which is brilliant. And uh, just more recently, a Hyundai Kona. We were very lucky to get... One because they only imported 80. So there's not that many around. But they're, I mean, they're bringing a lot more in. But the interesting thing is in that four-year period, so they have roughly the same range. The Tesla's got a slightly bigger battery, but it's a bigger car. So they have about the same range, you know, a genuine 250 miles in the winter, in the wet, with the heater on. So you could do well over that, particularly in the Kona in the summer. But 250 miles is way enough, yeah, that's the thing. In fact, it's you know we've never got close to getting low in the Kona on a long drive. We don't even get near it. You know, we get down to sort of forty percent, and then you need a wee. You know, you've got to stop. You've been sitting still for hours, so we plug it in a rapid charger and top it up. But the Tesla is kind of what it is, and the Kona is like a sensible, normal car that is actually useful because. <laughs> Doing naught to 60 in under three seconds isn't that useful. It's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody who doesn't have an electric car thinks about range anxiety. If you have no. one, you don't. Why, is, why don't you? Well, because you, you, you certainly do when you first get one. I mean, the first time I drove that little IME from Birmingham to my house, which is, I think, about 63 miles, and particularly the last three I was very anxious about because it's all up quite a long, steep hill. <laughs> I was going... Uh, and I, I was actually sweating. I was on the M5 coming down from Birmingham and there was actual sweat running down because I just went, this is going to stop any minute. And I'm on the way, what am I going to do? Oh, my God. Terrible. And then I got home and I went, oh, and it was, because that one had fairly limited range, it was extremely low. But because I didn't know what would happen when it got that low. I'd never driven it before. So that was, yeah, I think the first time you drive an electric car on your own, not a test drive from a garage, you know, but you're going somewhere in one, you'll go... Oh, my God, will it get there? So then the next step is learning how to charge it. And not, it's not, learning, I mean, that takes two seconds. How do you plug it in? There, that, it goes in there, all right. The charging infrastructure is still extremely annoying on occasions, but it, it's improving very rapidly. So, you know, because when people say, oh, there's no charging infrastructure. When I had that iMeve, there was literally one rapid charger in the country, which is at Mitsubishi's offices, and nine times out of ten, it didn't work. And all the instructions were in Japanese, and no one at Mitsubishi could speak Japanese. <laughs> so that was challenging when there's one in the whole country. So there's now, I think, something like 22,000. The numbers have continued to grow since that conversation. ZapMap is a database of the electric vehicle chargers in the UK. The last 30 days at the time of recording have seen 80 rapid charging devices installed. As there's more than one charging point per device, that's an, another 196 rapid chargers. I should probably say that rapid chargers rapidly charge your car. For example, something like the new Nissan Leaf in a rapid charger will be charged in under an hour for a range of about 150 to 160 miles, whereas a slow charger might take something more like six or seven hours. At the time of recording, there are 25,812 charging points in 9,547 locations around the UK. In fact, there are over a thousand more electric charging locations than there are petrol stations in the UK. 
While that's certainly not the case in every country, it's safe to say that to say that the infrastructure isn't there yet is no longer the case. Robert Llewellyn hosts the Fully Charged podcast and YouTube channel, all about electric cars. And I went to the Fully Charged live show where I met Robert again. He just hosted a panel with people from the automotive industry discussing the change in attitude towards electric vehicles. So it's a fully charged live show at Silverstone and it's our second year and it's become a very big event. Um, Upwards of 10,000 people coming over the weekend, uh, just about every electric vehicle. I don't know what's going on over there. No, they're they're waiting to rebuild the set which (laughs) collapsed. Um, uh, So, you know, every electric vehicle that's available but also a lot of stuff about home homes solar homes smart tech char- car charging battery storage all that sort of stuff as well so it's a big a very wide range of stuff that's on display here and you've been doing this electric car stuff for a while it's about you, nine years i suppose does this it? feel like a bit of a watershed moment i, I mean in a way it's uh, i think all the so the two panels i've just been uh, on the stage with i think it's the last 18 months there's been a really noticeable shift partly in public attitudes uh, and but also in like massive global corporate understanding of what's happening. So as they said, that the argument about electric cars is over. They're going to win. No one doubts that. But it's then now a question of how and how and when. It's not if. If's gone out the door. And that is really interesting to hear because that's not from uh, you know activists or EV owners now or anybody. That is from people who distribute billions of pounds of investment. So they're shifting it from the fossil fuel industry into battery, manu- battery manufacturing, uh, managing the materials, recycling, all that sort of stuff. And it's really now a question of, how, because that's a really key point, I think, can we do this industrial revolution slightly better than the one we've just, we're still suffering from? You know, so if we're, when you extract the materials for making a battery, if the damage you cause to the environment is the same as the oil industry, well then what's the point? We've got to move on and I think it's very interesting what they've been saying I've been to a couple of their conferences that that is a real key driving force within the management of massive mining companies, you know, you sort of think they're never going to talk about that, bloody eco-warriors being annoying, no, they're actually going, we cannot do it the same, we've got to work out how we do this and, and cause less damage and I mean the key thing is when they extract materials that make a battery, that's, that's a, a piece of stuff that will last between 20 and 40 years and then can be used again. And when you extract a, a pint of oil out of the ground, it's used once very quickly and its, its impact on the environment lasts for decades. You know? So it is a different, it's an order of magnitude different thing, but we've still got to be aware of the, the impact that extraction has and the, the ethics of it in a way. Um, have you felt, is there a theme from the audience, what they're asking about? Has that changed over the years? I think it's, uh, there's a lot of frustration of people who want to have an electric car and they're either, the new ones are either too expensive or if, even if they can afford them, they're not available. You know, there's a shortage of them. The demand is hugely outstripping supply. And there are tax changes that take place next year that a lot of the manufacturers are holding back for. This is not so much tax for us as individuals but for them as manufacturers and incentives for them as manufacturers across Europe and, in, and it's staying in this country regardless of the other thing um, uh, that will really that there's a lot of talk now that you'll suddenly go into a car showroom and half the cars in there will be electric and they'll be on they'll be selling them and they will be a supply and it, I think the next thing is the thing I hadn't really thought about until recently is I didn't buy a new car ever in my life till I was just short of 50 just for my 50th birthday 
So I'd always had second, third, fourth-hand cars. Like, normal people buy it. Didn't buy... I mean, who buys a new car? No one I knew. It wasn't even anyone I knew that bought them. And uh, so that's... The supply of second-hand cars is still small, but it's growing. And, you know, it's still small because there aren't that many around. But that is going to grow really quickly. So as now we know of three really big corp companies that are buying thousands of electric cars for their stuff, for their company cars, not, yeah. not one or two or three that they have at the end which have a green tree growing over or something. You know, they're buying, you know, 4,000 of this and 3,000 of that. When those come onto the market in three years' time, the second-hand cars, there will be a huge supply. That's where most second-hand cars come from. I didn't even know that, but yeah, lease yeah. buying is by far the biggest num- yeah. in terms of numbers of vehicles. A criticism or concern about electric cars has long been the price of batteries. The cost of the battery pack have plummeted since 2010 when they were $1,000 per kilowatt hour to $176 per kilowatt hour in 2018. But the making and recycling of those batteries needs to be done properly to maximise the environmental benefits of electric vehicles. On the panel with Robert Llewellyn, with Simon Moores from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. We collect data and analyse the lithium-ion battery supply chain from the lithium-cobalt-graphite mine all the way through to the battery cell. Who's interested in that? Originally, I thought it was anybody in the supply chain, so mining companies, battery makers, electric vehicle companies that are buying the batteries, but now oil companies, governments, uh, lots of different participants which are well outside the active supply chain are really keen to know what's happening now. What's the interest from the oil company's point of view? To learn what the hell's happening, quite simply. Um, I think oil companies, uh, like any outsider from the supply chain, really feels what they thought electric vehicles would probably never happen, or they might always be niche, they might always be an eco-centric car. The realities are becoming mainstream much quicker than anyone ever anticipated. And so really for oil companies and other uh, participants alike, it's not a question of if electric vehicles are happening anymore, it's the rate. How quickly will they happen? How will it impact our business? And, of course, can we invest in this? You've seen BP buying Chargemaster, for example. Shell as well are looking down that charging infrastructure route, which is quite an intelligent way of dabbling their toe in the water but the reality is I think eventually you'll see oil companies buying lithium miners Um, battery companies will merge with automotive companies you'll see a lot of mixing of the supply chain and we've really just started right now most people will buy an electric car and not know anything about what's going on with the battery inside it from a really basic level these batteries are what we call in the industry jelly rolls of minerals and metals and uh, there are two main lithium-ion batteries that are used in electric vehicles. One's NCA, nickel-cobalt-aluminium. One's NCM, nickel-cobalt-manganese. And the NCM has a number of different variations. The, really, the real drive from uh, the battery industry for EVs is pushing towards what they call NCM811. That's, that's 80% nickel, 10% cobalt. Essentially, it's driving up nickel content, driving down cobalt content for longer range but cobalt is cobalt's a stabilizer in the battery so when you're charging it and when you're running the battery cobalt actually stabilizes um, the energy within the battery and the nickel is uh, adds the energy density so nickel allows you to pack more energy within the battery cobalt is a stabilizer but if you increase the nickel you have to decrease the cobalt so you increase the energy density but you, you also increase the risk of fires happening and thermal runaway 
these car companies and battery companies are always looking for lots of different flavors of this, this nickel cobalt manganese and they'll continue to, to push. And why do we want to reduce cobalt? Uh, mainly because of the price of cobalt, it's quite volatile. So they've gone from an LCO battery, which has 33% cobalt in it, to actually pushing towards that NCM, which is like under 10% of cobalt. Volatility and price was the main thing, and then also cobalt being mined in the DRC and the association with child labour. Now, even though that's a tiny amount of the total amount of cobalt produced, we think it's two to 3,000 tonnes compared to the 130,000 tonnes produced last year. The reality is it's a bad look. So uh, companies are trying to reduce that risk also with the price risk with it. Is anybody looking at alternatives to cobalt? They're looking at cobalt-free cathodes, but for us, you're always going to need cobalt in a battery. It will be a reduced amount of cobalt. It might even be a little sprinkle at the end of the day, but cobalt will be needed because of its safety uh, stabilising aspects. But you have other technologies that don't use cobalt. LFP, for example, this is lithium phosphate battery technology that are used in many electric buses. Uh, that doesn't use cobalt. Uh, so there are options out there, but the reality for us is cobalt isn't really going anywhere. And why would that be used in buses but not in a Nissan Leaf or a Tesla? Or well, LFP batteries, are they've got a lot of power behind them, so they'll be able to drive those big uh, electric buses forward. LFP are perfect for that, but they're heavy. They've got iron in them. So really for a Tesla Model 3 and, and other cars, you need... Light, light, as light as battery as possible with enough energy in it to actually give you the range and that's always the challenge for these, um, these car companies I, I think a concern from a lot of people from an ecological point of view is the recyclability of these batteries well you know what a battery's like in your mobile phone they're only good for about 18 months, 2 years which is what the, the, the guys that make your mobile phone and laptops want because then they want you to buy a new PC basically same for cars, so they're going to be good for well they thought 8 years, now it's 12 years and then they'll get to about 50% of the original capacity, we think, although they're lasting longer. And then once they're at that level, you know, you're going to get a new car, really. And so the question is what to do with all this battery capacity. One, there's money there, but two, there's going to be a responsibility to recycle. And uh, they're the two drivers, really, of battery recycling. It's just really started on a commercial level, but no one's really going to make a lot of money from it until really 2023, when you have... You know, the, the Model S, the Nissan Leaf, even the Model 3 coming, well, maybe not Model 3, but coming towards the end of their life, which means you've got, you, you've got big batteries, a big supply of batteries, you know what chemistry uh, it's going to be, and you know what raw materials you can extract. Well, if you have that, that certainty of supply in the chemistry, you can build a business. Uh, until then, we've been dealing with mobile phone batteries, LCO. Sometimes it's labelled as an LCO battery and you might have some other chemistry in it. So you can't predict the minerals that are in it. And so we're going to have to wait another five years for this to pan out. But there will be money in it. And when there's money, uh, an industry rises and recycling is one of the most promising industries, I think, in, in the battery space. And is that, it, it's literally just we didn't have the cars in the, in the market before now. Yeah, as simple as that. And then the chemistry has been standardised to a certain extent. You've got either NCA in the Teslas or NCM pretty much elsewhere, which means you can predict, right, there's going to be that amount of nickel in it, there's going to be lithium I can get, there's going to be cobalt I can get out of it. And that's really what the industry are still waiting for, is this kind of steady supply of batteries that we can predict. Walking around the fully charged live show is like any other car show, except the stands are all about environmentally conscious technologies, and all the cars are fully electric. There's a classic VW campervan which has been converted to electric and has something, a reported range at least, of around 100 miles. There's even an electric DeLorean. Now that really is going back 
to the future. Sorry. On one of the stands, I met Chris Day, Technical Director of Jaltech Systems. Uh, we design and produce electronic systems for um, many, many different electronic applications, including electric vehicles and electric charging. Primarily in this marketplace, it's around charging. If you were manufacturing or designing an electric vehicle, um, then you may come to us uh, for help with things like uh, the conceptual engineering of the product. So if you want to design a, a charging unit, you want to change AC DC motors, up voltage in, inverters if you're going back into the grid. Um, if a lot of vehicles these days are now going vehicle to grid. So people will generate electricity through solar panels on their roof. They'll store that in their car. And then they get to the end of the day or when they don't need that power in their car and they'll write it back to the grid. And then that's being power, which means they then get paid by the grid for the power they've generated from their solar panels. And they're using their cars to store the power. And there's a lot of moving in, within electric vehicle charging because every vehicle charger I understand now from July the 1st that's installed has to be smart so you need to, you know, it needs a modem in it it needs to be able to communicate it needs to be able to tell people how efficient it is when it's used how it's used all those sort of stats you know, information is everything isn't it these days um, so there's 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 a lot of movement and a lot of change in a market that's not mature it's it's early days um, and hence there's many many people doing many things different ways so your, your tech kind of gets in... It can be from the solar pa- the sun power in solar panels um, or wind farms or, or anything, hydroelectric, you, you name it, uh, where you will just store, you'll generate electricity. There we then, we've designed systems for storing that electricity, so monitoring what you're charging, etc., battery management and, and etc. for storing the power. And then, when, then, then it's the opposite side of that is then using that power. So it can be within the electric vehicles, it can be within the chargers, um, charging the vehicles. Very, very broad. So, so what, what are some of the challenges then with, with, with designing electronics in storing this? <clears throat> Moving power around, you know, a, a, lot, of vol- a lot of power. Um, the biggest challenge is battery technology, which everybody acknowledges. And that, you know, that's moving on. Um, but I think a move towards solid-state type batteries from lithium-ion, lithium-cobalt, etc., purely because of the, the cost of extracting those materials from the earth and the scarcity. So batteries are very expensive because of the cost of getting the raw materials. Um, when you move to a solid-state type battery, which will be five, ten years away, I'm guessing, maybe more, maybe quicker, I don't know, really. Um, but when you move to that, you'll get a lot more power in a much smaller unit. It's a bit like solid-state logic, where you, if you ever buy a Mac, it has solid-state memory. Yep. So it's dynamic, and it literally just stores data in a not on a conventional hard disk. Um, solid-state batteries are more generating the power and storing it in a capacitive manner. So you charge something up, and it holds the charge, rather than the chemical reaction within the battery then keeping and holding the charge. So wind farms are getting more efficient. In fact, some instances, wind farms, they develop too much power and the grid doesn't have the capacity to store it. So if you ever drive past a wind farm and one's not turning, it might be because it's broken, but it's generally because they've turned it off because they they can't generate, they they can't actually load the power to the grid because 
it doesn't need it. Solid-state batteries could lead to longer battery life, increased range for electric vehicles and faster charging. They use solid electrodes and solid electrolytes instead of the liquid ones that we know of in the current batteries. It could be another gear shift in the electric car market when or if they're introduced. One of the things you can't help but notice about electric cars is how quiet they are. And driving one, you've become aware of the fact that pedestrians are far less aware of you than if you were in a noisy petrol or diesel car. The cars are in fact so quiet that they have artificial sound added to them for safety reasons. Rumours that I've been looking into hacking that technology so that they all play the Physics World Stories podcast are wide of the mark, but I did meet with Dr Mihai Kalip. Mihai is a senior research associate at the University of Bristol who recently acted as external consultant for NASA's Materials Lab Open Science Campaign for experiments on the International Space Station, but that's possibly for another podcast. He is a senior researcher in Metasonics, and Mihai sees several applications for Metasonics technology in the electric vehicle industry. We have invented uh, the first technology to dynamically shape and sculpt sound waves in real time. So what we do for sound is very similar to how LCDs work for light. What an LCD does for light, it takes a single back source of light and it transforms it into 16 million pixels, colors. Uh, we do the same for sound. So we divide, created a, a lens, a screen, that shapes sound waves in real time. So you need a single loudspeaker, and this screen transforms it into thousands of uh, tiny speakers. So you can create individual spots of sound on the other side of the screen that can be controlled independently. If you have an electric car, you can't hear the engine anymore, but you hear the noise from the outside. So you want to create quieter cars. And quieter cars require, obviously, quieter road surfaces because that's how the sound is transmitted uh, via the, your, you know, the car tires into the car, but also quiet interiors or... That's another way of, of treating the noise problem. Uh-huh. Um, so you want to kill the noise that comes from the outside. And th- these two noise uh, sources, the acoustic noise that comes from, from the outside sources, also generated by the tires on the road surface, um, and the vibrational sound that comes via the tires into the structure of the car, and it vibrates, and you can hear that yeah. from inside the car, which is quite uncomfortable when you drive 90 miles an hour it's quite a quite a big problem so what about what what can you do to stop that then? i'm working with uh, big um, automotive companies uh, or in-car um, automotive manufacturers um, to reduce create quieter tires but also quieter car interiors so we they take our technology and they put it inside the car inside the door, the boot, uh, the roof of the car, so that you reduce the noise generated by outside sources, other cars. Hmm. So it blocks the sound? So it blocks the sound, yes. Okay. The sound hits the surface, this uh, filter, an acoustic filter, and uh, it's deconstructed on the surface. It's a physical device. Right. It is a lens. It's tangible. It's not waves. 
And so is, the sound interacts with this filter. And is it transparent? You can make it acoustically. Well, sorry. I'm talk, when we talk about transparency, this to you, you want optically transparent or so something that you can see yeah. visually. Uh, and when I when you talk about transparency in acoustics, you want to make it acoustically transparent, which means uh, you want to have something that doesn't hinder propagation of sound. Yeah. So you can have it both ways. Okay. And it is transparent. It's optically transparent. And acoustic. Well, it's not acoustic. If it was acoustically transparent, it meant <laughs> it didn't do anything to the sound. It would have blocked <laughs> yeah. the sound. Yes. So you, if can, we, you can do both. If we were going to have these at the sides of motorways, then... To block the sound from motorways through the acoustic barriers, yeah. Yeah. If you were, it, what would that look like? And actually, that's how I started my research. I was doing research on acoustic panels, sound panels that you place, you know, even for trains on the railway. Um, you want to block the sound because it's quite noisy. Um, currently, they are horrible. I mean, when you look at the the barriers, you just have either a wood surface with some ridges and the sound inter- interacts um, and it's, it blocks, it kills the sound slightly, but you still have uh, frequencies propagating and people hear the sound. So my technology uses, employs something that I call, well, the physics community calls acoustic uh, metamaterials. And these are man-made materials. They are engineered so that they display unusual microscopic properties. So in my case, if you think of an analogy with optical lenses, an optical lens is concave or convex, and the light interacts and you can focus light. Um, what metamaterials uh, do, you don't need those bulky optical lenses or acoustic lenses, which are not uh, flat because you can squash them into really thin lenses, filters, which are flat, have flat surfaces on both sides. Uh, in my case, each of my acoustic pixels have, when I talk about sound in air, they have these uh, channels. It's like an acoustic meander, a sound channel. So it's an air channel where the sound propagates. And the length of these uh, channels dictates how much well, they change the phase of the sound propagating in each of these acoustic pixels. So you can reform sound, uh, you can focus it at a point or create a cloaking region around an object. You can divert it in any way possible. Yeah. And you can do any beam shaping operation, like for medical imaging. Um, so that's how these look. And going back to these acoustic panels, these absorbing panels they place on on. In the, in the future, yeah. on, on roads, they will have both acoustic properties, but also they will be optically transparent. So you can, def- you can make them very thin and compact. So the sound goes through them, it interacts and it gets absorbed or directed elsewhere yeah. towards the sky as opposed to going towards the village nearby oh. okay so that's that's blocking the sound but i feel like you can use this this technology to make my music listening experience better in the yeah. car so that's yes i had to demonstrate this and one was this domestic window with gaps that blocked sound so it was the, the acoustic filter and it was designed for in a frequency range where a soprano can sing 
like a really high pitch, the highest pitch as far as I can see, 5,000 to 6,000 hertz. My other demonstrator, the car dashboard, had a screen, you touch it, and uh, the driver will hear the sound coming from a GPS source, and the passenger will hear the sound from whatever, yeah. a radio station, or if you want to watch a video on, on the screen, yeah. uh, you can hear the sound from that video. And neither the passenger or the driver would hear each other's uh, wow. podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. And that was very simple. It was, uh, you have a directional speaker. Directional speaker is like a, uh, an acoustic spotlight. So sound propagates uh, very long distances in one in one narrow beam, yeah. uh, and you can using Metasonic's technology you can uh, change the propagation of sound. And these parametric speakers for directional audio they normally use ultrasonic parking sensors. They work at forty kilohertz, so the carrier frequency. Uh, you modulate audible sound using on the carrier frequency, and this, uh, the narrow propagation, well, the narrow beam from the ultrasonic carrier frequency will take the audible sound in this long uh, beam of sound, and Metasonic's technology can direct the propagation of sound, so you can have, you can split the sound in different directions. You have yeah. beam, uh, a beam splitter. Because without the metasonic thing, presumably it would then just bounce off the window at the back and then bounce around the car. And... Yeah, it goes in all directions. Yeah. Without uh, metasonic's technology, you would need to move the source instead of moving the sound. You just need to like psh, change the tilt your loudspeaker. But you don't need to do this anymore. You can just fix it somewhere in a car on the dashboard and you place this lens in front and this lens does the shaping yeah. of sound and moving the sound in the direction you want. So, and in here, you can talk about dynamic devices as opposed to being static. You can, if you want to have some static, uh, a, st- a static filter in front of your loudspeaker, that means that you know exactly what the location of yeah. the passenger and the driver is in the front seats. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to direct sound in the back seats then you need something that is more dynamic so you can modulate these acoustic pixels in your lens such that the sound uh, will be directed in any direction you want. I'm just thinking that this would have been really helpful for me in recent years I would have heard let it go from frozen considerably less (laughs) than I have done oh yeah people yeah I get this uh, very often the applications for metasonics go well beyond electric vehicles and I'm sure we'll return to that for another episode of the podcast in the future I did promise you a new addressing system I've found myself using what three words more often recently if you haven't used it it might sound a bit odd but believe me it's one of those things that you just didn't know you needed until you use it i met claire jones of what three words at the fully charged live show so we basically decided that it was about time that we stopped using an addressing system designed a few hundred years ago and started something that meant i could 
very easily reference every spot in the world, whether that's a spot on the beach, whether it's the entrance to my house, um, whether it's a charging point. And so what we did is we took every three meter by three meter square in the world, of which there are 57 trillion, <laughs> and we labeled each one with three words from the dictionary. So I could say our office in London is at Filled Count Soap, it's totally unique, and everywhere in the world has one of these addresses. So today we're at uh, Silverstone, and the entrance um, to one of, the, one of the buildings here is at uh, Corkscrew Wriggle Twigs. The idea is that the, the, the words are fixed, so they don't change, which is really important because it means it works offline. So unlike normal addresses, which is if I build a new house, somehow that's got to get into a database, and then it's got to be updated in every car and phone, etc. The idea with this is they never change. So if I say to you, I live at Left Clown Pasta, that's never going to change until I move house. How does it generate those words? So it's an algorithm. So basically what you do is you take 40,000 words and an algorithm. And although it seems random, so when I say I used to live at Slug Vines Bucket, there's no, no slugs in my house, there's no meaning here, but there are actually two rules. So one rule is that the more common words go where people live. So apple, spoon, chairs might be in places like New York, D.C., the U.K., where people speak English in their cities. If you go to the middle of the desert somewhere, you'll probably get words like dodecahedron catastrophically overwhelming so longer words go where people are less likely to need them and then the other rule is really important for error detection so we're human right we make mistakes we know that happens so we basically figured we want to make it so obvious when you've made a mistake you never go to the wrong place so we put similar combinations really far apart so table chair lamp might be in the US and table chair lamps would be in Australia toffee branched pyramid is in the UK coffee branched pyramid is in India okay so how does it how do you want it to work with electric cars? So it's already working with electric cars. So some of them, so um, for example, if you buy the new EQC, which is Mercedes electric vehicle, uh, it's actually integrated already. So if you said to me, hey, Claire, uh, we're meeting today uh, to go for a drive and we're driving to Apple Banana Spoon, I could get in my EQC. I say, what three words? Apple Banana Spoon with my voice and it takes me there. So it's integrated actually into the head unit of the car. So electric vehicles are integrating in there. They're also putting into apps. So um, you can you can plan your route, you can plan where you're going, you can make sure that when, you know, when you're going somewhere you can drop the car at the right place. But the other thing we've loved seeing is that people are able to communicate charging points to each other. So for example, if my friend and I, we are, we're using a car, you know, we've got an electric car, maybe we've hired it, and she can say, I've left the car charging at Piglet Banana Spoons, and I can be like, great, good, I'll go and pick it up. So suddenly you've got a way to communicate very accurate locations. One of the things we're seeing is people don't always know how to explain where a charging point is, and they're saying to someone, oh yeah, it's you know behind the back of the Tesco, round the corner this way, you've got it within three metres by three metres. Obviously the other side of electric cars is autonomous vehicles. I mean, I, I certainly hope it starts being used, because right now, when we're driving, we get lost sometimes, and at least when, you know, often you might be fighting with each other about where you should be going, but at least you're talking to a human. You know, when you've got an autonomous taxi, it definitely needs to come to the right side of the building to collect you because you can't phone an autonomous taxi and say, yeah, I'm wearing a blue skirt, look for me, doesn't work. Or when you're in the car and you realise they're going the wrong side of the building, you can't say, ah, this always happens. Can you just drive? Just keep driving. Yeah, can you see that tree? Turn right at the tree? Just doesn't work. So the idea for us is that people need to start using this now and they certainly need to start using it before we get to autonomy. Are you sure it's not it's completely random because I don't want to give away all three words but I just looked at my bedroom <laughs> and I'm an astronomer 
and its planet's noses, right? And you can see there's an issue there. I mean, <laughs> it's, well, you're very lucky. I think, I guess the thing to remember is we are humans and we like patterns, right? Yeah. So if you take 57 trillion combinations, you can often find little stories to tell in them. I mean, there are enough. I mean, look, for example, I think reform speech debate is somewhere in the Houses of Parliament. But bear in mind, they're three metres, so there may be a lot of squares <laughs> somewhere in the Houses of Parliament. So we like to look for patterns. But yes, there's no meaning behind the words. We didn't intentionally put that in your bedroom. Well, no, I'm sure you didn't. Uh, it's nice though, isn't it? Yeah, very no, nice. So the reason we're using words is because you remember them because you're a human and you make pictures and you go, you know, I can remember that I live at, I used to live at Slug Vines Bucket because it's, it's, this is different to doing a, you know, me saying to you, I live at QX94F15W, like, that doesn't have any, it doesn't have any resonance. So the words don't have meaning, but because we're used to communicating and remembering words, they work for us. You, we're just using an antiquated system. We're using a system that was designed a long time ago, and it worked pretty well. And you know, for us, we're just saying, if you want that extra layer of precision, you want to say exactly where you're going, then let's add that layer of precision and use three words. It's not just useful for electric cars, but for instance, you might know that there's a charger at the car park in your local shopping centre. But car parks like that tend to be rather big, and electric charging points tend to be rather small. Finding them can be a little time-consuming. What three words lets you pinpoint it easily? And as Claire Jones said, the use for autonomous vehicles is clear. You can hear more about autonomous vehicles back in that August 2018 episode of the Physics World podcast. And of course, you can hear from a host of other scientists and science fiction authors and actors on the Cosmic Shed podcast, thecosmicshed.com. Next month, here on the Physics World Stories podcast, we'll be talking to Libby Jackson at the UK Space Agency about how physicists can use the International Space Station. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.